This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is clinical psychologist Kathleen Nado. Kathleen is the founder and director of the Chesapeake Center for ADHD, Learning, and Behavioral Health in Maryland. She is the author of more than a dozen books on ADHD, and her work has focused mainly on girls, women, and older adults. I found Kathleen's work through an article I read that resonated with me about how ADHD is often overlooked in women and girls. And as you'll hear, this topic piqued my curiosity some time ago and has remained on my mind. As a parent with a child who has ADHD, I'm fascinated by the ways we can support them and bring awareness to their feelings. I learned so much from Kathleen and her pioneering approach to understanding the nuances of our attention. So let's get to my conversation with Dr. Kathleen Nato. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, you are very welcome. I'm delighted to do it and, and really excited that you're paying attention to, to the issue. I'm curious how you got interested in women with ADHD. Well, and I have permission from my daughter to talk about it, but my daughter, she was diagnosed with ADHD about a year and a few months ago. It was utterly fascinating to me because I had heard, of course, about ADHD, and and I, I think what I had come to understand about it was sort of more how ADHD affected boys. Of course. And so I did not recognize, you know, from anything I had heard culturally, I did not recognize what was going on with her as ADHD. She got good grades. Mm -hmm. She was able to concentrate and she came to me and said, you know, I would really like to go and talk to a 
person about this because I just don't feel that I'm processing things right. And it's all in my brain, but I can't get it out on the page sometimes. And I thought, you know, in one of my lesser stellar parenting moments, I thought this is nuts. She's totally fine. Like I, okay, but of course, sure. If you want to go do it, let's go get you assessed. And it turns out that she had a pretty marked case of ADHD. How old is she? She's currently 17. So she was. Ah, so. And then I started to research it and understand more how the symptoms present so differently in boys and girls. And I don't think that it's something that's spoken about at all. And so that's when I found you and your book. And I thought, gosh, if I could get an opportunity to talk to you and so that it might help other young girls, you know, and then the funny thing as well is when I read her report, I thought, oh my God, I have this too. (laughs) Only the very best people. So I would just, I would love to start by asking you a little bit about how you came to the, into this field, what captured you about it and, you know, essentially what you're trying to solve with your work. I'll start by saying that I and most members of my family, my siblings, my daughter, son, granddaughters, all have ADHD, but that is not how I got into the field at all. Not at all. When I was a child, it was obvious that my younger brother was very hyperactive. He was the classic kid that everybody knows about, and he couldn't sit still, and he hated school, and he was bored, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was dyslexic, so school was doubly hard for him. Mm -hmm. And so everybody knew that Richard was struggling with this thing that we later came to call ADHD. But I was a good student. I liked school. I, you know, very, very different. And the way I got into the field was purely because a public law was passed requiring public school systems to provide accommodations for ADHD if a diagnosis was made. And before that public law was passed, and we're talking 30 years ago now, the only thing you could do for ADHD was take Ritalin. That's all the only medication on the market. And there was tremendous controversy. You probably wouldn't be aware of this, but the Church of Scientology in California got in a major battle with the American Psychiatric Association. And they decided to attack the American Psychiatric Association by basically purporting all sorts of false information about Ritalin. You know, that it could make kids suicidal and kids were jumping off bridges. I mean, it was just absurd. And so parents were very frightened to have Ritalin prescribed. But then when this law was passed, oh, finally, there's some other kind of help. And so I was a psychologist with a general practice and my phone started ringing off the hook from pediatricians saying, do you know how to diagnose this? Because we sure don't. I mean, it was that long ago. And I said, yes, I do. And so it was just by happenstance. And if you'd asked me at that point, do I want this to become a specialty? I would have said, good God, no. I mean, I don't want to treat endless you know, behaviorally disordered eight-year-old hyperactive boys, uh, that because that's what we believed it was then. 
But I got immersed in it simply because of that law's passage, and it immediately became apparent to me that, you know, the mother would be sitting there saying, well, I don't know, I mean, I'm not really just like my son, but I had some of these, and then the dad would say, I was exactly like him when I was, you know, and it became very evident that it affects everybody, both genders, it's an equal opportunity disorder. And back in in those days, we totally falsely believed that you outgrew it. And I cringed to think of all the parents that I reassured, oh, don't worry, he'll outgrow it when he gets to be 12 or 13. Because what was true is that boys' hyperactivity levels went down at age 12 or 13 when they went through puberty. They certainly didn't get rid of the more challenging aspects, which we now understand. So it's, we have learned so much about the brain over the decades of my career that I've just found it ceaselessly interesting. And I can tell you, even now today, we're starting to talk about new core symptoms of ADHD that were not talked about 10 years ago only beginning to be talked about five years ago, which has to do with serious problems with emotional dysregulation. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I want to ask you about that specifically, but first I would love for you to just define ADHD for us. What is ADHD? Well, first of all, ADHD is a misnomer, (laughs) and it's a misnomer that causes lots of problems because of the name Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, and, you know, any committee in its ultimate wisdom ends up with absurd decisions, like it's all ADHD even if you're not hyperactive. I mean, how, how much sense does that make? doesn't make any sense at all. So it's really a misnomer, and lots of people mistakenly think that problems with attention are the problem. That's the problem, and you can take medication, and then you can pay better attention, and it leads to all kinds of problems, because then parents think, well, they don't need to take it on the weekend, unless they have homework. They certainly don't need to take it in the summer, because they're just not aware of everything else that's impacted by this thing we call ADHD. So there are 
brainwave differences when you have ADHD, their neurochemical differences when you have ADHD, and there are structural differences in the brain. Really? ADHD. And so it's, it's much more complicated than most people think. But the predominant issue for ADHD is that the prefrontal lobes of the brain, the part of our brain right behind our forehead, is underactive when we have ADHD, and it's underactive due to an adequate supply of dopamine. And, and that's what the stimulants do, is they increase dopamine levels. And, and a cup of coffee increases dopamine levels, and a cigarette does, and that's why we learned quite a few years ago that kids were much, much more likely to start smoking cigarettes if they had ADHD. I mean, they were literally treating their disorder. I mean, they felt better, they felt more alert when they smoked nicotine. So very dangerous way to, to treat an supply of dopamine. But caffeine, you will always see me with a cup of coffee. I, I sort of treat mine with caffeine. So, getting back to what the heck is it, our idea of it is really, really evolving. And if you go to the DSM, that's the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and they republish it every so many years. We're on the DSM-5 now, and it will still divide it up the predominantly inattentive type or predominantly hyperactive or combined type. And what we've really learned over the years is there's really almost no such thing as predominantly hyperactive. Mm. It really, and, and that means, and we started talking about this maybe 20 to 25 years ago, that the core symptoms of ADHD have to do with what we call executive functioning just being able to keep your act together, being able to plan and organize and execute tasks, to prioritize them, to remember them. You know, I need to pay that bill. I need to go back to my car before I get a ticket. Oh yeah, I need to return that phone call. And that what happens uh, in the brains of people with ADHD, and boy, do I, I witness this in myself constantly, that there's so many thoughts swirling around in our brains at the same time that I can go on my email, for example, intending to send so-and-so an email about X, and I immediately see all these other emails that are urgent and, oh, I forgot to get back to her and I'm off to the races. You know? <laughs> you're, you're describing me exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I have to talk to myself, no, no, write your email first and often I'll, you know, don't do that. And so in, in one sense, an ADHD brain is incredibly creative and productive. Yeah. I mean, my, my staff jokes about me that please keep her busy or she's going to have another idea we should all go do, you know, because there are just so many things to be done. And I love that part of having an ADHD brain. But keeping ducks in a row is, is very hard when you're being bombarded. Interesting. So is it sort of a right brain, you know, person? And versus a left brain person, you know, the, the left brain people are the more kind of organized. Yes and no. 
You're on the right track. However, I mean, I am very much a left brain person in the sense that I am a word person. I swim in the world of words. I like to write. I like to talk. I like to listen. Words are my medium, which is certainly not a right brain phenomenon, which is more ideas and design and connections. But it was very interesting. I Many years ago, I read a first-person account by a professor at Johns Hopkins University. He was on the faculty there, tenured faculty. And to my utter amazement, he was diagnosed with ADHD. And here he is, this brilliant guy on the faculty. And he started worrying, because he was middle-aged at the time, that he'd be sitting in a meeting and he couldn't think of a term or a date or something that he knew he knew very well. And he was thinking, my God, am I having early dementia? What is going on here? And he went and amazingly found a psychiatrist in Baltimore who said, no, you don't have early dementia, you have ADHD. And he was an anthropologist, very, very creative guy. And he started thinking about his brain and then writing about how he felt his ADHD was absolutely the key to his resounding success in life because he said all the other guys that you know are in my field they just read these four journals and they all kind of are in this echo chamber debating you know how many angels can stand on the head of a pen and I've got a curious George brain, that's what I always describe it, and so I'm just reading this and this and this and making all these unlikely connections, which led to him becoming a, a very famous anthropologist. So he, he was an amazing guy, and I love to use him as an example in my lectures about that it really can be a tremendous advantage if you are in a field that really fascinates you and that you're really engaged. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So... Get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. So can you talk a little bit about the signs of ADHD in both girls and boys and how they differ? Well, there's, of course, tremendous overlap because it is one and the same disorder, but that being said, the symptoms that are most obvious are not necessarily overlapping. I mean, the hyperactivity is much more common in boys, and that's what everybody looks for. And so hyperactivity in girls is much more often manifested by being hyper-talkative, because we're girls and we like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> And I can remember looking back, even though I was a very good student, you know, very dedicated, that I got in trouble over and over for talking in class. You know, I just wanted to talk about it. 
And also because I had trouble listening and staying focused, I would sit next to my best friend who did not have ADHD. And Julie always knew what was going on and what page we were supposed to be on and when the test was. And so I was always asking Julie, what did she say? What, you know, and then I'd get in trouble for the what did she say. So hypertalkativeness versus hyperactivity is one. Another huge difference is social connectedness, enormously important. There is a lovely guy in California named Stephen Hinshaw, and he was the head of the psych department at UC Berkeley for a long, long time. Very, very well-known guy. And he had, as a young man, worked in summer camps. And he got this idea, why don't we start a summer camp on campus at Berkeley to observe girls with ADHD in their social interactions? And he and his grad students run, ran this summer camp for many years. I mean, they had piles of data on, and they had girls that did not have ADHD and girls with ADHD in the summer camp, and they did not know that the camp had anything to do with ADHD. I mean, they just knew it was some cool camp, and the students were the camp counselors, and they had fun activities. And so Stephen Hinshaw did these beautiful observations with his students, and what he was really paying attention to was what happened to these girls socially, because there certainly are girls with ADHD that have excellent social skills. I'm not saying that that isn't true because there's just an enormous range of how it's manifested and to what degree it is. But as a whole, girls with ADHD have difficulty with social interactions for a number of reasons. They are distractible and so they miss social cues as I'm sure you're aware, and there's so many studies of how differently males and females in general interact socially, and paying attention to social cues is incredibly important if you're female. How do I know that I'm boring you or annoying you or interrupting, you know? And girls with ADHD, especially in a group setting, kind of are looking around and missing a lot of the cues. And so the phrase that Steve Hinshaw developed is that hyperactive girls tend to be socially rejected, as in, we don't want to play with you, you're too bossy or outspoken or critical or get too frustrated. And the inattentive girls were socially neglected meaning that they would just kind of stand on the periphery and they didn't quite know how to get into the mix and they felt awkward and self-conscious. So these are huge issues and, and they continue into adulthood for sure. And my writing partner, Patricia Quinn, who is now retired, she and I wrote the book Understanding Girls and then again the book Understanding Women with ADHD. And we ran just informal focus groups at annual meetings focused on ADHD, meetings at which not only professionals, but people impacted by the disorder would attend. And it was the most amazing thing to see these women 
say, this is the first time I've felt safe, I've felt understood, I've felt accepted. I mean, it was just like the biggest reunion. And they would come year after year and become fast friends over the internet because they had felt like such an outsider in the normal course of events. So social issues are huge and different for females. And what's so interesting is that it's not necessarily that the boys are doing just fine socially. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that the way boys are impacted by ADHD, they're bolder, they're bossier, they're bigger risk takers, they're active. And so in some ways, it's congruent with the way you're supposed to be as a boy. And so they can, you know, be kind of king of the hill. I had a nephew with really exaggerated ADHD, and he never met a stranger. I mean, he could talk to anybody about anything. And he would say to me, Aunt Kathy, you could drop me into the middle of New York City from a parachute, and I'd have friends in five minutes. And he was right. I mean, he'd just go up and he didn't see any barriers. But the boys' research shows that even when parents reported, my son doesn't really have any friends, or maybe a friend, the boys did not report that, and they did not report being socially distressed in any way. I think we females have a much greater need for connection and acceptance. So how do you begin the process of diagnosing somebody when they when they come in? Well, I look at a much bigger picture than many people do, and I think it's so important to do that. And I keep beating that drum at my clinic. Don't just focus on the child or the, you know, you've got to look at their context. And one of the reasons for that is that ADHD is so genetically transmitted that you could show symptoms of ADHD and not have it because you're terribly anxious or you're depressed or whatever. And so the first thing I'm looking at is, okay, who else probably has it in the family? And it doesn't mean they've got a diagnosis. In fact, in many cases, they don't. But I'll say, is there anybody in the family that is really smart but never finished college? Is there anybody in the family that's had a million jobs? They just get bored, they can't take it, they don't like their boss, and off they go. Is there anybody in the family famous for always being late or famous for being incredibly cluttered? I mean, just looking at these are the things we see in people with ADHD. And so they, oh, yes, and I think my mom was, you know, and then you start, you know, it's coming out of the woodwork. And if I'm not hearing that, I'm not thinking ADHD. You know, it, it doesn't just spring out of nowhere. So it's definitely genetic. It's definitely genetic, but it's not a single gene. It's very complex. It's very complex. And the other thing that, you know, talking about new discoveries, the other thing that I think is incredibly important to understand is, and I've only thought along these lines in the past couple of years, that ADHD as an adult psychiatric disorder has more comorbidities, more coexisting psychiatric conditions than any other psychiatric condition. 
Wow. What has led you to that? Well, it's, it's not just me. It's led many people to it. There's a psychologist who actually retired and lives in California now, Tom Brown. He's the guy that founded the ADHD clinic at Yale, and he was at Yale for many years. And he did some of the initial research on very bright people with ADHD because his population were all Yale undergrads. And before that, we didn't believe you that if you were very bright, if you were at Yale, there's no way you have ADHD. We were just very ignorant uh, and only looking at worst-case scenarios. So in terms of the differences between boys and girls, I would say the predominant ones are the hyperactivity and the very different reaction to social acceptance and social interaction. But another big difference is evident, and that is, and this would be true for someone like your daughter, that many girls, because they're female and because they're bright, don't manifest any problems until they hit puberty. And that's a very common age at which girls are diagnosed. And that gets me to a super important issue that we don't pay nearly enough attention to, and that is the impact of hormonal fluctuations on ADHD. And that's why it starts at puberty, and you can see girls just losing it, just emotionally overreacting, and I can't possibly get this paper done, and I hate my sister, and just, you know, just all this explosion. Of... <laughs> I thought that was just teenage girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's like teenage on steroids. It's, right. It is that, of course. I mean, they're teenagers, but it's, it's much exaggerated. And often you can track it. And this is a study I've been trying to get going at my clinic because I don't think anyone's done it. If we tracked ADHD symptoms and emotional dysregulation symptoms, would they track by the menstrual cycle? I believe they would. That's fascinating. And so is that true then for perimenopause and and menopause? You got it. And so get this, when when adult, you've heard of the book Driven to Distraction. Most everybody's heard of it. It came out in 1995, and that was the huge awareness, ah, adults have this too. And suddenly... A few adult ADHD clinics popped up at universities. I think there were four or five that were just suddenly opened. And we still were saying that three or four times as many boys as girls had it. And yet at the adult clinics, more females than males were showing up for diagnosis. And they were going, hmm, where did they all come from? (laughs) Is it ever too late to go in and have a, an ADHD diagnosis? I'm so glad you asked me. No, it is not. And I just about three weeks ago finished the first and so far only book on older adults with ADHD, which is going to be called Still Distracted After All These Years. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And it's coming out in the fall. And it's never too late to be diagnosed. And adults, there's a real lack of training. And so many ADHD specials will not prescribe stimulants to people in their 60s or 70s. 
And yet, ironically, in nursing homes, stimulants are used all the time for mm-hmm. apathy, for depression. So a geriatrician is, you know, knows that it's perfectly safe to prescribe them. And that's the drum I'm beating. These folks need help, and physicians need to get trained that, yes, they might need a cardiac clearance to go on stimulants, but the great majority of them really respond well to it. So it's never too late to be diagnosed. I started when the pandemic hit my clinic, which is a fairly big clinic. I decided let's offer lots of free support groups to different demographics. You know, moms raising kids with ADHD and teenagers and better. And I and one of my older colleagues decided let's start a support group for older adults with ADHD. And surprise, surprise, it ended up being almost entirely female. So what happened is we started this group. It was a delightful, interesting bunch of women. And almost all of them were very creative in one and talented in one respect or another. And were they all diagnosed or were some undiagnosed and suspecting that they had it? We had both. I would say the majority of people had become recently diagnosed or diagnosed in middle age and now they're 10 years older or something. But others just said, I'm pretty sure I have it. I haven't gone to a doctor yet. I wanted to learn more about it. That group became the emotional anchor for those women during the pandemic. And they met every week, facilitated by myself and Dr. Van Oost, my colleague. And more and more women would hear about it and join it. And they get so much out of it that we ran and facilitated that group for a year and a half. And then I said, you know, we need to go on to other things. But I really hope that you all will continue with each other. And they have. I mean, it just, that group, they have learned so much about self-understanding and self-acceptance and, That's great. That's really, because it is, there is a stigma around it. And that's, you know, it's one of the reasons I, I mean, I'm so impressed with this generation Z and how kind of forthright they are and self-accepting they are. And, you know, my daughter, when I told her that I was doing this today, because I've, I've really, I'm really trying to learn more about ADHD and anxiety. And, you know, I, she said, that's so cool that you're doing it. And are you going to talk about my ADHD? And I was like, well, I, I wasn't going to. And she said, no, you absolutely can. So I don't think she feels stigmatized by it, which is wonderful, but, but my generation still oh, yeah. does. You bet. Absolutely. Because of so many misconceptions And I'm very upset about the ongoing training of child psychiatrists. I mean, we have a number of child psychiatrists at my clinic, and we brought one on just pre-pandemic, and I had a long talk with her and telling her about my interests and girls with ADHD, and she had finished her child fellowship two years earlier, Children's Hospital, Washington, D.C., great place to be trained. And she said, they didn't tell us any of this. Can you talk to me a little bit about the, you touched on this earlier, the emerging thinking around the emotional differences or impacts, because that was something that I kind of read 
in a cursory way in my research that, for example, girls with ADHD tended to be more anxious or more homesick and, and things like that. So I wanted to ask you about your observations around this topic. Well, in my clinical experience, which is very long and lots of people work with me, girls tend to struggle more with anxiety and depression than boys do. You will read articles to the contrary, and those articles come out of clinic-based populations. Like one big article came out of Mass General, you know, Harvard, terrific credentials, absolutely no difference in anxiety and depression between boys and girls, which certainly hadn't been my experience. And the reason for that is they were studying clinic-referred girls, and clinic-referred girls in those days were those few girls that were just like the boys, the ones that were aggressive and hyperactive and impulsive. And so it was... uh, a very skewed population that they were looking at. So what I find about emotional dysregulation, and there's several terms being bandied about, rejection-sensitive dysphoria you may have come across. And William Dodson, who is a psychiatrist that I think very highly of, who just retired in Denver, is the one who came up with that. And basically having such chronically low self-esteem problems and people don't like me and I don't know why and I try to make friends and people kind of drop me as friends that and and it's such a painful process and he dubbed that rejection sensitive dysphoria but I'll tell you that anybody struggling with that is you know 75% or more are going to be females I mean, I've, I've literally never had a guy come into my office and say, oh, I try so hard to make friends and nobody likes me. I mean, I can't think of one. They might say my wife is constantly mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a very different experience going through the world because, of course, we are females and we take that with us, whether we've got ADHD or anything else. So, of course, there is a huge interplay between what it's like to be female and then have this thing that we call ADHD. And, you know, the old English rhyme, snips and snails and puppy dog tails, that's what little boys are made of. So you you get to be grubby and dirty and get in fist fights, and that's what it's all about. You know, sugar and spice and everything nice, and you're supposed to be tidy and clean and polite and sit in your chair. Well, that's awfully hard to do when you have ADHD. Yeah, for sure. And so females, much more than males, go through the world saying, I am not socially acceptable. Not to my parents, especially so many men with ADHD marry very organized women because that helps them function in the world. And then if that couple has a girl with ADHD, that mom does not get that daughter. Why can't you just do it the way I do it? This is ridiculous. Clean up your room. Get up on time. What's the matter with you? Which can be incredibly painful. And so what are the interventions around or the modalities to help around that emotional piece for women or girls specifically? Well, I 
I am a firm believer, and you won't read this much of anywhere, but I have observed <laughs> it, that being in a group with other females your age with ADHD is one of the most healing experiences. Just to be affirmed that it's not just me, and we're all different, and these girls really enjoy each other, and they get so excited. We, we had a group for high school girls that was meant to end at the end of the school year, and they didn't want to end. No, we want to keep seeing each other. I mean, this is my tribe. I finally found my tribe. Don't tear us apart for the summer. It's that powerful an experience. I think another really important intervention has to do with helping parents have different expectations of their kids. Of okay, talk to me about this because I need to absorb and learn everything I can on this topic. Well, it's really important and it's in way kind of a simple concept and that is the prefrontal lobes of the brain are the last part of our brain to fully develop and so a lot of the things that we associate with maturity are just the result of our prefrontal lobes finally being fully online and for the average non-ADHD person that happens in your early to mid-20s and suddenly you quit overdrafting at the bank and you have a system in place and you get to work on time and life is not pure chaos, which for many kids it is in college. I mean, they're just kind of bouncing off the walls, ADHD or not. When you have ADHD, that timeline extends to age 30, sometimes even in, I've seen it in early 30s. Can we talk a little bit about medication for ADHD? Because you know, this is something I think that I find in talking to a lot of other mothers in, of my generation. You know, there are a lot of people who are very, very resistant to the idea of putting their kids on medication for ADHD. And, you know, I have experience with medication for ADHD being night and day for the kids that I have, you know, tr that I'm tracking with this. And so, I just wanted to understand a little bit, like from you, your perspective, what do you think the resistance is from parents around medication if you do encounter that resistance? Is it safe? What kinds of medications are there? And just kind of your, your philosophy around it, just so I can better educate myself. That's a, that's a good question. And I always respond to that question by saying, my job is to help you figure out every possible way to get your brain to function better. And that's going to involve sleep. It's going to involve nutrition. It involves exposure to nature. There's fascinating research that the more we're out in nature, the lower our ADHD symptoms go. There's a whole body of research on that. It has to do with nutritional supplements, because very few of us get everything we actually need. It has to do with stress management. Our brains just don't work well if we're under stress. And so there is a growing body of research on the power of mindfulness meditation in significantly lowering. So I, I am agnostic. I mean, I'm not trying to push medication 
on families, but I will tell them that the great majority of people, it's enormously helpful. And you've probably heard all kinds of misinformation, like people say, well, it's like taking cocaine because cocaine is a stimulant. And I tell them, well, ironically, not only have I never had anyone become dependent upon medication as it's prescribed, usually my struggle is helping them remember to take it, which is not a behavior of somebody that's addicted to something. (laughs) I mean, nobody says, I forgot to smoke my cigarette. (laughs) Right, that's true. Yeah. So I just say the other thing is it's it's immediately active. I mean, within half an hour, 40 minutes at most, depending on what you're taking. And so it's not something you have to take for a month and then check the blood levels. I mean, you just take it and see how you respond. Mm-hmm. And so there's no they parents will often say, is my child going to have to take this the rest of their life? And I say, no that we we can actually take stimulant medication the same way I take a cup of coffee. I mean, that I actually worked with a woman that was going to law school at night and had a full-time job, and she only took stimulants about four in the afternoon because her brain was already fried and she still had to go over to Georgetown to go to law school for three <laughs> right. hours. And that she said, I can do it during the day, but then I'm out of steam and I need the stimulant. So it, it can be taken selectively. But what I tell parents or adults is that ADHD impacts every aspect of our life. It's not just for work. It's not just for school. It's for being able to manage life. And what one of the ways I describe executive functions is what we now call adulting. You know, adulting is hard. One other thing that I wanted to ask you a little bit about I understood that you are focusing a little bit on disordered eating as it relates to ADHD. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Do you mind delving into that a little bit? So that's a very important topic that almost no one is paying attention to at all. And it's now considered a comorbidity. In fact, if you go to eating disorders programs, they'll say, oh, yes, we have a lot of women with ADHD in our program. And then I ask them, well, how do you address their ADHD and how it impacts their disordered eating? And you get kind of a blank look (laughs) because they don't do anything about it. They just treat them the way they treat everyone else, including get this, telling them not to take stimulant medication because it can be an appetite suppressant and that's a no-no. We're trying to teach you how to control your appetite without any, you know, chemical enhancement. And so they're doing, in my view, exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. So I'm not talking about eating disorders. I'm not talking about dangerous levels of bulimia or anorexia. I'm talking about disordered eating patterns of binge eating and night eating and compulsive overeating, not necessarily a binge, but just eating all the time, which is very common among females with ADHD for a number of reasons. And I started a group, an experimental group called Stop Losing the Food Fight. And 
was basically just teaching. It was just an eight-week structured psychoeducational group to help them understand how your ADHD is impacting your eating patterns. One is that people with ADHD are very addiction prone, just in general. You're more at risk for drug abuse, for becoming alcoholic. And I am a real believer that sugar is an addictive product. And research has come out in the last two years showing that the brain has a stronger dopamine release to pure sugar than to cocaine. It's like these two communities are not talking to each other, and I'm trying to get some crosstalk going. And I have a neuropsychologist that is going to be joining us, a newly minted neuropsychologist who has ADHD herself and has had disordered eating since she was a little girl. And so she said, this is what I want to spend my career doing, is helping women with ADHD change those disordered eating patterns. I think another huge factor has to do with that adulting, the executive functioning skills, that it's a pain in the neck to plan meals and shop for them and cook for them and clean up after them. And so many single women and moms with ADHD rely on fast food and carry out and maybe they'll cook a couple of things on the weekends, but it just requires so much organization and planning and effort that's hard when they've got so many other balls in the air. And then that potentially impacts the nutrition aspect that you are speaking got about. It. This seems to be a very, an emerging science all the time, multi-pronged, it expressing itself in many different ways. So if you had to name it something else besides ADHD, which I believe you felt was limiting, what would you call it? Well, that's a very good question, and it's such a multifaceted disorder that I haven't found any perfect description yet, but it is definitely a disorder of self-regulation, whether it's getting yourself to sleep on time and up in the morning or eating properly, or it's a disorder of self-regulation. That actually makes me understand it about a hundred times better. This has been absolutely illuminating and wonderful, and your work is so important, and I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to my chat with Dr. Kathleen Nato. To learn more, head to her website, chesapeakeadd.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.